Church family, it's, as always, it's um, great to be with you. And can I just say, uh, this morning I was struck and just inspired by listening to your worship and the joy of knowing I'm in your family. And that might not inspire you that I'm part of your family, but it inspires me that you're part of my family, a family of faith, people who follow Jesus and have an allegiance to see him grow us into the kind of men and women he'd desires us to be. We're in Colossians chapter 3. If you turn your Bible open to Colossians chapter 3, you've got some in front of you there if you don't have your own Bible or use your device and we'll get into um, verses 15 through 17 of Colossians 3. We've been in a series, but if you are new to us, that's okay. Don't panic. We'll catch you up to speed and you'll be able to get into this great text. It is really a text that I treasure. i I love this, and because um, I think it's so rich, what I'd love to do, I'm going to start our time this way. If you could just take a breath and breathe it out and um, come to prayer and just invite, as Eva was so great at leading us, just echo her words, uh, Father, would you just by your spirit speak to me by this word, and then take some time to read the text, verses um, chapter 3, verses thirteen or 15 through 17. So take a breath, pray, and then read the text yourself, and then we'll dive right in, okay? really rich, isn't it? I love these words. Um, Humbled by it, encouraged by it, challenged. Hopefully you'll catch that same spirit. Uh, If you've been with us, you know a little of the context. We're in chapter three now of Colossians, which is a wonderful book. If you haven't had opportunity to read it yet, I'd encourage you to dive right in. It's not too late to start memorizing it. If you want to do that too, that's fantastic. Um, So here's the immediate context in the chapter. Paul has been speaking to a group of believers who are wrestling, you know, with how to relate to God and and how to have relationship with him and how to have health in their walk with him and not be steered off the rails without other people's expectations for them and how they ought to, to live. And he gives them a metaphor, a word picture that sticks in our minds, right? It's a picture of clothing. And in that metaphor, he invites these people who are now new followers of Jesus to take off some stuff that's really, that just reeks. Like this clothing, it is not healthy for us to have on. And he gives a list in the first part of his word there where he's asking them to take off a bunch of stuff. And the stuff that he's asking us is not a full list, but it is a list that's convicting. He says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever is in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is now coming. And then verse 8, 
Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He has a list of all these things that are broken inside of us and that we need as believers to be part of our old way of life and not how we're living right now. And if any of that list, you wrestle with it, you're human and you're struggling with the temptation that every believer does. But I want you to hear this. There's great hope for you. You can walk away from the old stuff. You can intentionally, and as God gives you strength, leave that stuff behind you. And you can step into what God has for you. And the list that he has for us, the new clothes that he has laid out for us, as it were, this wardrobe, is really fantastic. Uh, Pick it up in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with other, that's forbearance, and forgiveness. And then over all of these, put on love, he says in verse 14. So the context is to put on these new virtues. And what's the result when that happens? When actually God is at work in my life and he's reshaping my character, then what happens to that? At the end of last week's text, there is a phrase, uh, the first kind of hint at what happens, and it's a phrase, perfect harmony. What happens is, then I start to sing with my friends around me, and it makes this beautiful concert, this noise that really lifts up God, and it's in tune. It's not off tune, and it really is is wonderful and delightful. So that's the first kind of it. Now Paul is going to flesh that out. So what does it look like to live in the kind of life that God has designed for you? And what are the things that really are products of that? How do you step in? And the first phrase he gives us is a really strong one. It's a powerful one. It, it should make you step back, right? Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. So think about your week for a moment. Just all the crazy stuff that was going on at school, at work, um, in your home life, your family, perhaps your marriage, the kids, and all the things that pulled away from peace. You know, you look at the chaos around you or the struggle of people. Look at what's happening in the news and all the challenge of that. And you say, how in the world is it possible to let the peace of Christ rule in my heart? So let me step in first with a little helpful definition and just ask, what do we know about the peace of Christ? What, what do you know about the peace of Christ. Some of you have actually experienced it. Like you're in a really difficult place of life and all of a sudden you can just, you have, you have confidence. You know that God's in control, right? And even though things are spinning out of control and feel hectic around you, sometimes you even step back and look at things and you're like, wow. But you have experienced something going on inside. That experience for believers is described here, I believe at the very beginning of our passage, verse 15. The peace of Christ is actually ruling in your heart. But I want you to pick up something significant about the peace of Christ. So the disciples, in some of their most hectic moments, frantic moments, they they were unsure of their future. They didn't know what was going to happen to Jesus because Jesus told them he was going to sacrifice himself, and they were wrestling with what in the world that could possibly mean. 
And they were also wrestling with what did God, his expectations for them in the moment. And people were starting to feel very unsettled about Jesus. There was a crowd of people that were persecuting him. And the disciples were struggling in the moment. And Jesus, John 14, says these words, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid or overwhelmed with fear. So the first thing you have to understand about the peace of God is this. It's a gift. Like you're not going to get it by meditating more or learning how to breathe or, or any other thing. The first thing you need to understand is this is a grace of God. He's going to give to you. And Colossians 3 here says, let that peace, the gift of God, all right, let it be in you. Let it rule in you. And the first thing you need to understand is Jesus gave it to his disciples as a gift that his peace, he's saying, would be their peace. His poise under pressure, his perspective in the heat of the battle, his ability to shut out the noise and focus on the most significant things, his sense that God was in charge even when it didn't seem like it. His peace he would implant in your heart. And it could rule you. It could determine your reactions in the moment, in the heat of the moment. At work, when things get crazy and people are pressuring you, in the heat of that moment, or when you're struggling in relationship with someone who's dear to you, in the heat of that moment, his peace could rule you. Now, Paul points out the source of this peace earlier in Colossians chapter 1, where he says this, Colossians 1, verses 19 to 20, For in him, it's talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That the source, the, the means by which God brings this gift to us, and the power by which God is going to bless you with it, it was affected on the cross of Christ. When he sacrificed himself for Jim Schultz, you know what he was doing? He was saying, not only will Jim, because he's my chosen one, have relationship with me, he's going to discover peace in his relationship with me and his relationship with his wife that he's blessed him with. And you are blessed, brother, right? And with his family and at work, let the peace of Christ that he's accomplished on the cross rule in your heart. Because listen, what is it that you're fearing? What is it that you're struggling with? If you know that he has loved you and rescued you and has eternal plan for you, and that you are his child, his beloved child that he will always protect, and he's got your best interest in mind, and his purposes are best for you, what is it that's causing the lack of peace for you? All right, you're trusting yourself, your insecurities are about yourself, not about Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross. So what he's accomplished is his peace through his shed blood. In Ephesians 2, 14, it says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, 
You were struggling without any kind of peace in your relationship with God. You were wrestling. You had been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, excuse me. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in the context, it's talking about how people were treating each other with hostility and how people were struggling with hostility in the relationship with God. So first, the vertical relationship, what God accomplished on the cross is to draw you near and to make peace, offer peace to you with himself. Scripture is clear that you were once an enemy of God, and now you can have peace with him if you would just receive his forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And he would break down, Ephesians 2 here, says he would break down the wall of hostility, the relational wall he's talking about. In the context, it's fascinating, actually, because it's a relational wall of hostility between men and women, between nationalities and ethnicities, races. And what God did, the power of God on the cross, is to break through all that man-made garbage that, that brings hostility to one another. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Not all the other junk, not the hostility that people so easily step into. Don't let your reaction be the reaction of people that you live around because you were intended for something far better, far greater. And let it rule you. These verses reveal that Jesus' sacrifice is the greatest instrument of peace that the world would ever know. And without the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, there is no peace. There's no peace between you and God. There's no peace between you and your spouse in your home. There's no peace at work or at school. There's no world peace. We all long for world peace. The Bible is very clear that without what Christ has done on the cross, there will be no peace. But our hearts can take confidence in the fact that he has already accomplished this. So let it rule you the way you respond this week. When the peace of Christ is not ruling in my heart, I know it. Don't you? Right? When, when you're anxious about stuff, when we're struggling and, and wrestling, and all of a sudden our fears, that our insecurities start overwhelming us, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future, and we start panicking about how other people are looking at us, and and what could happen next? And it's just like it feels really, it feels really scary. But there's an answer from God's word. First John 4 tells us that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. His peace abides in, in you, literally. And he and God. So we have come to know and believe that the love God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. God abides in him. And by this love, it's perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment when we stand before the Lord. Because he is, all, because he is so also, we are in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, what? Yeah, casts out fear. The Lord casts out fear. 
Fear has to do with punishment. I'm, I'm afraid of how God is going to treat me or look at me. But that's not the case anymore because he has loved you and demonstrated his love toward you even while you're still a rebel and running from God. He still loved you, invited you into relationship so that you might experience his peace. You might step into it and know it with confidence. And we are to grip onto that kind of love and to let it rule us. The the word there really means that it should be an umpire in our life. We should have confidence in it, that it's going to make the right decision, and it's not going to fly out of control. You know this, that the umps, theoretically, umpires in sports are supposed to be the one person on the field that's not going bananas emotionally, right? They have their stuff together, being calm, cool, collected. They, they spell out the rules in theory. I'm at this baseball game. I, I happen to love baseball. And, um, and uh, things got really heated and tense. It's in the ninth inning, and one team's a little bit down, and, and the pitch comes to this guy. I'm, right, I'm actually right behind home plate. And uh, he doesn't like to call at all. He starts, you know, yapping to the umpire and using all kinds of creative language I hadn't heard for a while. And um, the umpire's kind of cool. He's, play, he's trying to play it cool. No, that was a strike, you know, and it's right there. And <clears throat> next pitch comes, and same thing. Like, it is a strike, but the guy is so mad that he took the first one. Here's the second strike, and then he just goes off. And he goes ballistic on this umpire, and the umpire's had enough. And he starts yelling at this other guy. And now they're kind of back and forth, back and forth, and they're drawing. And they're about 10 feet away from me. And I thought it was the greatest thing. I loved it. <laughs> that was my fallen nature, loving the conflict there. But they're like, yeah, 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 at each other. And, uh, of course, the umpire tosses them out of the game and then tosses the manager out of the game. And I think, oh, that's great, you know. I kind of missed the message, right? The umpire missed it because he went way off. He, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. The text says, let it rule you as an umpire, that let it be just, let it calm you. Let the peace of Christ come into your heart and help you make right judgment and give you perspective in the moment. Not to fly off the handle, but to be right. Now, how do you do that? Scripture often helps us look at Christ and what his reactions were in the moment. And I would encourage you to reread the events around the cross to get in your heart and mind how Christ could enter into all kinds of chaos and hostility where people were pouring it out on him. And his reaction in the moment is peace. He has confidence in his father that his father's in control even of the moments where it feels like he's not. And that his father is sovereign and will do the right thing in the right moment. And that brought him peace. And this was the very peace that Jesus was giving to his disciples, to his followers. So you would think, oh, they got it. But then what happens right afterwards, right after the crucifixion, the disciples, his followers, they're up in this upper room, and the text says it was because they were afraid. They had no peace. And the first thing that happens when they're all gathered there and they're struggling with their fears and insecurity, Jesus steps into the room, the risen Lord Jesus, and he says, peace be to you. He's reminding them of John chapter 14, 
Peace I leave with you. Let it rule your heart, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Let that rule your heart. To which, indeed, you were called in one body. You were called into this, the peace of Christ. And he gives us context into one body, one family, this family right here. You were called by God himself to be here this morning. He's sovereign. He brought you here. And one of the purposes was to live in the peace of Christ and let it infect your neighbor. Let it influence the people around you for you to be a force of peace in this fellowship. This family is where God has called you to be an agent of peace because we need it. We hurt each other. We can say things that we didn't intend and wound each other. We can get at each other's nerves. We can do all kinds. I, let me just say, I can do all kinds of poor things, things that contribute to the lack of harmony, and we need every person here. This is your spiritual role before God as followers of Jesus to be peacemakers, to step into the peace of God, to let it rule, not just in your personal life, but to let it rule in the family together here. We seek to be a family that believes the best in each other and that leads into peace, that cares for each other. And when you step in on this campus, and your, your life, your week has been hectic and horrible. Maybe you, peace was the last word that would describe your week. We want you to experience the peace of Christ because it rules, not just in individual lives, but it rules here. And when this happens, the text says, you are set free to be thankful. Now, isn't it interesting that Scripture has to command you to be thankful? And it doesn't do it just once. Actually, it's reminded three, we're reminded three times in these three verses to be grateful, to be thankful. And it doesn't just happen here in Colossians 3, right? If you're a student of God's word, you know this. It's repeated throughout the text to be grateful. Why do we have to have all these reminders? It's because we're self-worshippers. We're in our hearts. We're selfish. And we're not people of gratitude. We're not thankful like we should be. And we need this steady reminder that thankfulness doesn't come naturally to us. But it should be a result of peace ruling our hearts. I'm um, with a couple earlier this week on Monday, Norm and Sharon Bailey. Some of you might know them. And uh, Norm is really wrestling with health issues. And I'm at uh, Norm's bedside and uh, I'm praying with them just talking with them. And what I was struck by was how grateful they are. I, I was just, I was I got just so encouraged by this mature couple in Christ that are helping me see that regardless of circumstance, we can be thankful. We can have perspective about who God is and what he's doing with us. And we just prayed out our gratitude. I, it's striking, isn't it? That in even the moments of hardest wrestling, God wants us to experience and to pour out our gratitude, be thankful. Now, I can do that with words. I can do that in song. We, do that, we did that earlier, and we're going to do it again. 
And there are all kinds of expressions of my thankfulness. We've, we were um, encouraging you to help out other families in the area with food for Thanksgiving as an expression of our gratitude to God. Not of how great we are, but just so people would understand that we want others to share in thankfulness. And God has been so good to supply to us. In a couple of weeks, you saw it in the announcement. We have another big event. That's a toy truck, toy run, which Fred did really good, right? And um, at that event, it's not about the toys, by the way. And it's not about the tow trucks. So those are really cool. It's about blessing families in our area that they might experience our gratitude toward God and what he's done for us. And in seeing our own gratitude, the way we respond, our own thankfulness, that they would respond the same way to Jesus. So gratitude, be thankful. We need continual reminders of this. And it's because I'm fallen, I'm broken. And I need him, I need the Lord to inspire me because he's given me everything I have. Romans 8, 32 says that he spared not his own son, but he delivered him up for us. He, he gave him to myself. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And not only his son did he give us, Scripture is saying, but he gave you everything that you have. So we're grateful for that, right? We're thankful and grateful for what God has done for us. Let thanksgiving characterize you, especially in the light of what peace he offers to you. And then, here's this really great phrase, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Did you notice it didn't say, and make sure you know all the 66 books of the Bible can say them backwards. Right? It didn't say that. It, you might be able to, and that's really, that's really impressive. But it didn't say that. And it didn't say, make sure you have 700 memory verses. Memory is great, by the way. And um, by the way, again, I'll remind you, if you memorize Colossians 3, I'm taking you out to dinner, Mark. You know what I'm saying? So you can do that. But it's not actually talking about memory work here. It's about letting the word of God seep out of your pores. Letting it so affect you that your speech and action is different because Dad, it rules you and it's on your mind and it's seeping out of you. Let it dwell in you. Let it take residence in you. We're to live it and to breathe it. How do you do that? Well, you don't do it by yourself, by the way. That, that's not going to work. You're not going to go off to some monastery and just read the Bible and all of a sudden it's going to dwell in you richly because it has to have expression. It has to get out, right? The word of God doesn't just stay inside of you. It's got to express itself. And here in Colossians 3, there's something specific about the expression that we have that we're reminded of. It says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So, God's word is to be the central thing in our teaching. We need to know it well enough to be able to communicate it to others. And we need to correct and encourage one another. That's the word admonishing with God's word together, with all wisdom, insight. This amazing book, it has insight for life and truth. And so we're to use it. Now, notice the text didn't say, if you're a pastor, then you can teach and admonish others. That's not what it says. Let the word of God dwell in 
you richly, as you teach and admonish. It's our task together. It's our joy together. So when you come gathered in the family of God here, which which the Lord has called you to, and he loves, when you do that, when you come on a Sunday morning, then think about encouraging one another. Some people will walk out of here thinking, I really wasn't very encouraged. Ron could have said something different. That's totally true, by the way. You know why they missed out? Why they weren't challenged? Because you didn't step in and teach and admonish them because they needed that in their spirit and you needed that in their spirit. You need people, we need people, we need, all need people around us to engage our gift in ministry because we are all ministers and we teach and admonish together in all wisdom. Isn't that fascinating? So here on campus and in your home and in your life groups, we exercise this great counsel to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. I was in my small group this week. Once again, I was just sitting there smiling because I thought, how cool is it to just be instructed and encouraged by other people in God's word? I don't have to say anything. I can just listen to other people. I was the one that actually wrote the questions. And then other people were dialoguing about the questions and teaching me. I thought it was wonderful. And that's exactly what God wants of us here and calling us to, that we should be able to step in We ought to thoroughly understand the book and then help each other with it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to dive into the depths of the mysteries and understand all of Scripture and all of its mysteries because greater minds than mine and yours have been diving into it for the last couple thousand years and still haven't plumbed the depths of it. But it is simple enough for the most simple among us to get the heart of the truth and to be able to encourage one another with So this word, let it dwell with you richly, we're told. And as we do, something should happen. We should break out in song. I know some of you hate to sing. I don't understand it. I like to sing. But some of you don't like to sing. Maybe it's um, you feel awkward about it or weird about it, whatever. But here we're told, actually, it should find expression, voice in us as God's word is singing. And it should find expression with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms, of course, are the inspired voice of of thanksgiving. And often they're a product here in the psalms and then throughout scriptures of a hard struggle and someone voicing out to God their gratitude in the middle of the struggle. Those are the psalms that are inspired songs. But it's not just psalms that we're using as a tool. Literally, we're to use these praise songs, hymns. Hymns is not talking of here in the text, the original, only those songs written by Northern Europeans in the 17th and 18th century. That's, that's not what it says. Those hymns are fantastic. I love them as tools for my own personal life. And I, I love and corporate when we're singing hymns. They remind me of your great treasures of the faith. But that's not exactly what the word means here. It actually is literally a praise song that's a response that humans have composed as they reflect their thanksgiving to God. Uh, It's a praise song, a hymn to God. And then spiritual songs, which really means testimony songs, songs that declare my journey and what God has done in the thick of my journey. 
that I'm grateful, that are expressing my gratitude. So sing hymns and sing spiritual songs and use psalms with each other to praise his name together. So psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with whining in your voice, no, with gratitude in your hearts to God. You may have come to church this morning discouraged or depressed or struggling. I totally get that. What you need to do is enter into the songs. And when we worship, you're singing it to God, but you're also singing it to each other to encourage one another in your faith. And we sing it out with gratitude. And now the crowning word for us in all this rich encouragement. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In everything we do, in the details of my life, in the big decisions and the small moments, in the activities you participate in, in the things that you say and choose not to say, in Jesus' name, when you meet with your boss or your employees or your teachers at school, or your students, in the name of Jesus. When you have a conversation with your child or your spouse, in the name of Jesus, when you do your homework, or have that phone conversation, or text somebody, or tweet somebody, you do it in the name of Jesus to influence others, to point others to his glory and his honor. Whatever you do, in all of life, in everything, it becomes an act of worship. I have admired from afar Ruth Graham. Uh, how could you put up with somebody's travel schedule like Billy had for all those years? And, and how could you, like, uh, if you read her story, she went through a lot of challenges. Her marriage was not perfect in any stretch of the imagination, and yet she was a godly woman. And uh, she had a phrase that was over her sink in her kitchen. And the phrase said this, divine services held here three times a day. I like that. Very creative, right? What she was saying is, in everything I do, even if it's the thing that I don't really love to do, the dishes, it's a divine service because I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. In all that I do, I'm going to do it in the name of Jesus. How revolutionary when we consider it. Our immediate thoughts go to actions that are about ourselves, about what we can get out of it or how we can impress others. But what would it be like if we flipped that upside down and said, no, and everything I'm going to practice this week, it's going to be about the name of Jesus and honoring him. I believe these words from Colossians 3 are calling us to check our hearts and our language and our actions to test the trajectory of our life. Is it one of deep gratitude and doing all that we're doing for his name? And is there evidence of that? Think about this last week. How many things can you say that you did at work, school, home, in the name of the Lord Jesus? How many things fell short of that? Isn't it good to know that God's a God of grace? Like he's not going to hold that over your head. But he is encouraging you strongly that whatever you do, even on the way home today, in word or deed, 
We do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, we want to be that kind of people. We want to be people who step in to bring you honor. That where the peace of Christ rules our hearts, where the word of God dwells richly, where gratitude marks us as your people, and with everything that we do, we do it in your name and for you, because you're our Lord. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.